Um, we're all getting used to scam emails. Uh, I don't know how many you get a day. I get 20 or 30 in my spam folder, and every so often I have to go through them and work out if there's anything worth that, that's gone there accidentally. Uh, we're getting used to how to spot uh, the true ones from the, the, the wrong ones, the bad ones. Emails that say one thing, but they're actually something else. Emails that offer you something that's too good to be true. They try to trick you into giving away your personal details or to send them money. But what about Christians? How do you tell if someone is a genuine Christian or just a pretender? We're careful with our online security, but surely identifying a genuine Christian is far more important. We want to make sure people are true followers of Jesus, who are people who are born again, because their eternal security is at stake. And that's far more important than online security. It's got to do with more than appearances, more than church attendance, or giving statistics saying the right words or even having the right moral standards, that doesn't make you a genuine Christian. It's no good just looking the part. The reality has to go further. It's no good just looking Christian on the outside if it doesn't go any further than skin deep. Now that's the issue Nehemiah is facing two and a half thousand years ago uh, in today's passage. The question is, What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be an Israelite? What does it mean to be a true Jew? They've arrived back in the land. The temple's finished. But remember, things stall. They stop for nearly 70 years because the rest of Jerusalem is still a mess. But then Nehemiah gets involved and he begins Chapter 1, do you remember? By repenting of the sin that he and all the people have committed. Now that was chapter 1, but that's the key. That's the foundation of the rest of the book. Everything else that follows, that is the mark of a genuine Jew. And then he arrives in Jerusalem, he organises the people and they start rebuilding the wall. And by chapter 4, where we left things last week, the wall is up to half its height. And all in spite of opposition, they keep building because they're trusting God's promises. The promise that if they truly repent, he will restore them and bless them. But that plan, well, it meets a couple of obstacles this week. One external, which we see in chapter 6, which we didn't read, uh, and one which is internal, that's chapter 5 that Daniel did read for us. Chapter 5. Worse than enemies on the outside is enemies on the inside. Chapter 5 describes a famine and the rich Jewish nobles and officials exploit the workers. Not much changes. Uh, The workers have to mortgage their homes to buy food. They have to sell their sons and daughters into slavery so they can even survive. It's a terrible situation. And all the while, the rich Jews are getting richer off the backs of their poor countrymen. There's a huge outcry. Nehemiah's furious. And you can see what he does in verse 7. He says, I pondered them. I thought about their complaints. 
Then I accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Usury is unfair interest. You're taking unfair interest. It's taking advantage of someone else's situation. It's profiting from it. And most importantly, if you look back at God's covenant in Exodus 22, it's absolutely forbidden. You're not allowed to charge interest to your own people. And here are the privileged and the entitled doing it anyway. They're carried away by their own greed. But notice, even worse than interest, they're selling and buying their fellow Israelites as slaves. Now that's also forbidden, Leviticus 25. Uh, Leviticus 25, or, or the law talks about a debtor who could work off a debt by being a bonded servant. If you couldn't repay it, you could work it off. But the lender had to release them after seven years. Now that's different to slavery, which is what's happening here. And Nehemiah, he just can't, can't understand it. The people know what it's like to be enslaved to Babylon. And now they're doing the same thing to one another. He says in verse 8, we've just bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you're selling them all over again. It's actually the reason uh, God gives the Israelites back in Leviticus why they are not to sell one another into slavery. Because you were slaves in Egypt. And the people are speechless. They've, They've got no response. And so Nehemiah continues, verse 9, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you, now this is important, shouldn't you walk in fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He's diagnosed the problem. The external action of greed, it's just a symptom. It's a symptom of an internal problem. There's no fear of God. There's no commitment of loyalty. There's no trust of God. And actions have to flow from that. He says, walk in fear. The whole condition of God blessing and restoring his people depends on that. Fearing God. Remember what we saw last week. It's the question that hangs over the whole book of Nehemiah. God said that to come home, the whole deal hinged on whether the people of God Uh, people of Israel were going to really repent from their heart. And it looks like they're not doing it. And the effect is the reproach of the Gentiles or the disrespect from the nations around. Ridicule. A A lack of respect at their hypocrisy. So Nehemiah sets things straight. He makes them promise to give back the interest to cancel it, which they do, verse 12. And have a look at what he says in verse 13. Nehemiah shakes out the folds of his robe and he says, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep his promise. Get your act together, in other words. God is going to sift the genuine believers from the imposters like the very best email spam filter you've got. It'll sift what's true from what's false. There's no room for people who are going to ignore God and his covenant. The point is, simply having Jewish blood in your veins, it's not enough. You've got to live 
like the people of God. And yet too often that's what it's like for us, isn't it? We're Christians by name, but our behaviour doesn't back it up. We talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. We have to live as God's people. We need to remember in everything we do, it's got the the potential to bring honour to God or reproach. Because people can't wait to say about Christians, they're just hypocrites. There's nothing in it, it's all a sham, they're all imposters. The Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse. Over a period of years it discovered hundreds of heartbreaking stories of abuse and neglect. And on top of that, dumb, lazy, incompetent responses from Christian organisations. And the media, rightly, are holding us to account. They're demanding that we do better. We have to live like the people of God and not just talk about it. But it's not just at a a leadership or an institutional level. There's a personal level. Uh, You and me, in, in each of the interactions we have every day, at work, on the road, in the supermarket, on the train, on the sports field, People are watching the way you live. So let them see the fruit of the spirit that's inside you. Let them see compassion, generosity, integrity, patience, humility, instead of what is often there, selfishness, greed, anger, self-importance, impatience. Following Jesus, we say it all the time, but it means more than just listening to his words. Following him means walking after him, living like him. Well, from verse 14, Nehemiah sets an example. He shows the way that it should be done. He lends his corn without interest by making a point of not profiting from the situation himself. He doesn't even take his salary as the governor because he says the demands on the people are heavy enough. And the same thing in verse 15. Other rulers throw their weight around. Other rulers lived it up and lorded it over the people. They took advantage of their position. Like the very worst of local government councillors appearing before ICAC at the moment in a council district not too far from here. But what's Nehemiah say in verse 15? He says, Out of reverence or or fear, that's the same word, out of fear for God, I didn't act like that. I devoted myself to the work of the wall. Some leaders devote themselves to feathering their own nest, building their own things when they're in power. I, I devoted myself to the wall. And then from verse 17, it's not only what he doesn't do, it's what he does do. Every day he feeds hundreds of people through the famine at his own table. And it's all coming from this reverence 
or fear for God. Now that's the key, isn't it? It's not enough to simply change your behaviour. It's got to come from the inside. It's got to begin from fearing God. Now, remember, that's exactly what the people didn't do. Back in chapter 5, verse 9, the reason they charged interest, the reason they enslaved one another, was because they didn't fear God. And chapter 5 finishes, verse 19, Remember me with favour, O O my God, for all I've done for these people. It sort of sounds good, but in other ways it's quite sad, isn't it? Remember me? There's not many others. He's not sure how much fear of God there is in everyone else, but at least Nehemiah is showing some integrity. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's held up as in, in modern literature and books as such a great leader, but there's not many he's really leading well by the look of it. That's the end of chapter 5. The first half of chapter 6 describes the other threat to the work, the the external opposition, and and, and these familiar characters of Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem. Uh, There's there's two plans here. The first plan, it's an overt one, an obvious one. They spread malicious gossip about Nehemiah's motives from verse 5. And then from verse 10, they they call in some family connections. Uh, The family connections try to frighten Nehemiah that the danger is greater than it really is and he should stop work because it's so terrible. But verse 9 of chapter 6, Nehemiah prays that God would strengthen his hands. I love that phrase. Strengthen my hand. Give him courage. Give him resolve. Give him vision. Give him wisdom. Now that has results. Uh, That single-minded devotion, uh, by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 15, the city wall's finished, and it only takes 52 days. It's it's an incredible feat by Nehemiah and all the people. The wall's finished. Uh, And once the gates are finished, as we move into chapter 7, this same theme of being genuine, a genuine God-fearer, it's there once again. And and there's a contrast to the enemies of chapter 6. So start of chapter 7, Nehemiah is looking for someone uh, to guard the gates, to be responsible for security. And who does he choose? Verse 2 of chapter 7, I put in charge my brother Hanani. Now we met him back in chapter 1. He brought the news, firstly, to Nehemiah, who was in Babylon then. And he puts in, uh, next to him Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. Now notice why Hananiah is chosen, because he was a man of integrity and he feared God more than most men do. It's an interesting comparison, isn't it? Notice the two aspects. He feared God on the inside and then that showed itself in the integrity on the outside. There was a consistency of attitude and action. Fear. We're not talking about a quivering sort of fear here, not in terror, but a respect for God's holiness that leads to a life of integrity. A commitment to his opinion of you that bleeds out. That's what Nehemiah is talking about. A commitment to God's opinion of you that bleeds out. That's Hananiah, perfect man for the job. 
Now, will you notice among the Israelites that he's a rare breed? There are far more people like the rich of chapter 5 than the Hananiahs of chapter 7. And it's the crucial question we posed in chapter 1 that we keep coming back to. Nehemiah can enforce a change of behaviour. He can make them give the interest back. But can he make anyone genuinely fear God? He can confess sin on behalf of his people, but can he produce a true repentance? Now there's some good stuff that happens as the story uh, develops. Nehemiah does some good things. The enemies are put in their place again. The security detail is organised. The city begins to be repopulated. But it's all external. The mark of a true Jew goes far deeper. And there are far fewer of them around than the list of names in chapter 7 suggests. Because to be a genuine God-fearer on the inside, it's actually impossible without God doing a work. Trying harder doesn't work. Enforcing conformity, enforcing behaviour, that doesn't do it either. Building a wall to keep the world out doesn't do it. Whether it's in Nehemiah's time or today, because the problem isn't outside us. The problem is inside us. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We are all rotten in our core. Our nature is broken and corrupt. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in sin. Now that's why God sent Jesus. Jump forward in time, John the Baptist, hundreds of years later, and he is faced with exactly the same problem. Jews who need to truly repent. John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If it's real on the inside, it'll show itself on the outside. And then he says, and don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. John understands that there's more to being a true Jew than just your birth certificate. That's the problem. Then John presents the solution. I baptise with water for repentance. But after me will come one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's talking about Jesus, of course. The trouble with most true Jews was there were far too few of them. They had the law, but they couldn't keep it. They did their repenting, but for the most part it was only pretend. And so God sent Jesus with John preparing the way. Jesus deals with our heart, our sinful rebellion, by dying for our sin. And then he baptises us with his spirit. He pours his spirit onto us. He washes us clean on the inside. Cleansed consciences, not just cleansed hands. 
hearts transplanted from being dead to being alive. So that whether you're Jewish or not, it doesn't matter anymore. It's just whether you believe. It's not about trying harder. That won't work. In fact, it's even easier than trying harder because Jesus has done the work for you and all you need to do is ask. It's God who changes your heart, who gives you a new desire to love him and to fear him, a new desire to follow Jesus, and then by the power of his spirit gives you the power to do that. Change that begins on the inside and works itself out. In the last month or two, some of us have been thinking about our church mission statement, which is growing followers of Jesus. Now, in particular, the question of what does that look like? What does a growing follower of Jesus look like? It's got to look like something, doesn't it? A church of growing followers of Jesus. What will that look like? Well, I reckon there are five broad categories that the Bible describes. A growing follower of Jesus is about loving God. It's about being hungry for God's word. It's, for loving, it's about loving one another. It's about serving others, using your gifts. And fifthly, it's about being on mission. Loving God, it's about worshipping, following, trusting, serving and fearing him. It's about genuine repentance, humble prayer, contented joy. Now that relationship with God through Jesus, it'll produce things, it'll produce fruit. Uh, You will bleed reverence for God. You will be hungry for his word, the sword of his spirit. You will be expectant and resilient and thoroughly equipped. Thirdly, you will love the people around you in deep and genuine and sacrificial ways. Now, one of the ways you will love is to use your gifts to serve them and encourage them. You'll do it diligently and cheerfully. And lastly, you will be on mission. Your life will be about living for and speaking about Jesus to whoever you meet in whatever situation so that they too might follow him. If you're on mission, you'll be prepared and flexible and servant-hearted. And so church needs to be about making sure we're encouraging all of those things, those five areas. Now, God will do it. We can't do it. He will begin it on the inside, but then he wants us to work. He, He wants to work with us to grow those things outwards out of a soil, the soil of a humble, repentant, transformed, God-fearing heart. Well, that's my prayer. May God make us a church like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would begin a work in each one here and many more people in Ashfield. Give them a humble, repentant heart that fears you and then work in them to produce fruit, uh, fruit of loving you, being hungry for your word, 
loving others, serving them and being on mission. And we pray it all for Jesus' glory. Amen.